What is up, bitches? Welcome to the show, everybody. I am playing catch-up today, that's for sure. Um, Kamala Harris snapped at Charlemagne. I can't wait to talk about that. That happened a couple days ago. I've been itching to, to cover that one. Only issue is, and you'll hear me talk about this in a segment, definitely getting copyright striked for that. So, um taking some lumps for y'all, taking some lumps. I was considering covering it and not showing the video, but that, that, I mean, the video is everything, so I have to show the video. We'll talk about that. Um, I have the Biden presidency absolutely in tatters after Joe Manchin uh, just drops an elbow from the sky, so we'll talk about that. Uh, And then the reaction to that, Bernie explodes on Manchin, Uh, a Trump voter in West Virginia talks to the media, and... um, basically says, hey, vote for the Biden agenda because we need it here in West Virginia. Um, I got an Obama official, David Axelrod, who accidentally told the truth about Democrats. Um, Mike Huckabee and Donald Trump uh, fawning over the idea that Trump brought back the words Merry Christmas, hilarious. I got Tucker. I got um, more Pelosi corruption, Bill Clinton emerges from Epstein's plane to give a master class on leadership. I, I'm, I'm, I'm jam-packed today. Oh, and a couple I told you so segments, including um, the vaccine mandate that I told everybody would be upheld, ultimately, has been upheld. So, And by the way, there was, I got a lot of pushback on that, man. There are a lot of people who listen to this show who were like, you know, not getting the idea that just because they didn't like a policy means that it had to be struck down. No, I told you it would be upheld, and I was right. It was only temporarily stayed, and now it's back. So, all right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started, and we shall do that with Kamala Harris snapping at Charlemagne. So Kamala Harris spoke to Charlemagne, 
Um, he has, uh, I guess, a Comedy Central show. That guy does like 47 shows. I don't know how he has the time, although I shouldn't talk because I do quite a few shows myself. Anyway, so um, he, he started off the interview. Uh, look, I'm going to show you a little clip here, but he started off the interview in kind of a sycophantic way. Um, easy questions, softballs down the center of the plate basically was like, hey, do you think you're treated terribly because you're a black woman? And he insinuates, like, of course, that's why you're treated badly. But then after he does, you know, the fluff job at the beginning, then he pours it on heavy, and not only does he ask real questions, he won't let her off the hook. I think he asked Kamala Harris about Joe Manchin three or four times in the interview, and she gave terrible answers, so... Let me show you some of that here, and then we'll react. Somebody has to push back on Joe Manchin. That guy is stopping progress. He's ruining democracy. Are you willing to be that superhero? Because what scares me is if voting rights don't pass, or if Build Back Better Plan doesn't pass, or police reform doesn't pass, I'm definitely going to get black people to go out there and vote in 2022 and 2024, and, you know, Trump will be president again. What's the plan for all of that? Well, I couldn't agree with you more on the, the, the seriousness of these issues. And, and, and how people take these issues seriously. I, who's the superhero that's going to speak against Joe Manchin? I want to know who's the real president of this country. Is it, Biden, is it Joe Biden or Joe Manchin? I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. I'm so sorry, Robin. Be happy. She can hear me. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now, Vice okay. President? Oh, I'm sorry, you got a rap? Oh. So I'm sorry to interrupt. You're acting like you can't hear me. I can hear you. Oh, well, who's, the real, hear you. who's the real president of this country? Is it Joe Manchin or Joe Biden, Madam Vice President? Come on, Charlemagne. Really, it's Joe Biden. I can't no, tell no, you. No, 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 no. It's Joe Biden. And don't start talking like a Republican about asking whether or not he's president. Do you think Joe Manchin and, is a problem? It's Joe, and, it's Joe, and it's Joe Biden, and I'm vice president. My name is Kamala Harris. So she goes on there to say something to the effect of, like, here are the issues we care about, and this is why this matters, and she lists, like, a bunch of issues. Um, and the response to that is, if you actually care about the things that you just said you care about, then you have to directly call out Joe Biden. You have to declare who the obstructionist is and what he's getting in the way of. So Charlemagne lists it there. He's like, look, uh, voting rights, build back better. Uh, if you don't pass these things, black people aren't going to vote for you in 2022 and maybe even in 2024. So in a weird way, Charlemagne is actually trying to help not only Kamala Harris, but Democrats. And he's saying, look, uh, my finger's on the pulse out here in the real world. And the fact of the matter is, you guys aren't doing Dickie McGee's acts. And since you're not doing Dickie McGee's acts, I can read a poll and the polls show that you guys are in trouble. You're in deep, deep trouble. There was that poll that had Joe Biden at 38% approval rating. Kamala Harris is at 28% approval rating. Mayor Pete is at 37% approval rating. The Democrats in some polls are down 10 points in the generic ballot for Congress to the Republicans. Um, even in the good polls, they're like tied, and that's not going to be enough because the fact of the matter is Democrats need to win by like five points just to keep the numbers that they currently have because of all the gerrymandering. So Charlemagne is trying to wake up Kamala Harris here and say, if you don't call out the enemy and you don't put pressure and you don't actually fight for these things, why do you think you're going to win? Why do you think you do well? Um, and the thing that really got under her skin is, is it President Biden or President Manchin? Who's president right now? 
Um, the answer to that is functionally Joe Manchin. Now, this came out right before we got the news that Joe Manchin was like, yeah, I'm going to vote no on Bill Back Better. So in other words, the point was proved within the next two or three days that, no, the president is Joe Manchin. It's not Joe Biden. And what's Joe Biden's approach been to dealing with Joe Manchin? Uh, slap him on the back. Call him JoJo. He has a nickname for him where he calls him JoJo. They've been shredding their own bill 14 ways to Sunday in order to appease Joe Manchin to get him on. And then even after shredding it 14 ways to Sunday, Joe Manchin turns around and goes, no, I can't do it. I can't get on board. So let's understand what that means. That means literally no matter how much stuff you take out of the bill, no matter how much you weaken it, no matter how small you make the price tag, Joe Biden, or, or excuse me, Joe Manchin turns around and says, no, I'm still not for it. Now, how do we get to this point? Look, my theory is the reason why we got to this point is ultimately Pelosi, Schumer, and Biden, they would prefer a bill that's like a trillion dollars or something, a smaller Build Back Better Act. And so they're probably sitting there thinking, I, I like it that Manchin is, is stripping out all these provisions and making it weaker and weaker and weaker because that more coincides with their version of politics. What they didn't bank on was Joe Manchin ultimately saying, when push comes to shove, I'm not for anything at all. But Kamala Harris here is um, really showing the complete and utter lack of a strategy and a lack of caring about the substance of the bill, even though she pretends and goes on to virtue signal like, these are the issues we care about. I, I love how Simone Sanders, who was Kamala Harris's top aide, jumped in there to try to save Kamala. So in other words, it, uh, Simone Sanders heard a question that was a real question about who's president, Joe Biden or Joe Manchin, and she flipped out, and she tried to interject and intervene and, and shut the whole thing down. Understand something. Mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, and others, nightly news, they would never ask a question like that. And that is an indictment on the mainstream media outlets because this is a real line of questioning. And the fact of the matter is either Charlemagne feels comfortable enough with Kamala Harris that, hey, I'm going to ask this, or he doesn't care about the access, and so he doesn't care if she doesn't come back on the show again, and so he's going to ask this. But either way, he's doing the job that a real reporter and a real journalist should do. And by the way, if she doesn't ever go back on his show again, well, then now you know why CNN and MSNBC and others don't push Democrats like that, because they want the access. They want to know when Kamala Harris tries to run in 2024 or 2028 or whatever, the reporters at CNN and MSNBC, reporters, want to be the ones that get the exclusive that Kamala Harris calls. Say, hey, I'm running, so you can run the exclusive. And so they don't ask real questions. They don't push. They're not aggressive. And look, this is without a shadow of a doubt, especially after what just happened with Joe Manchin, and we'll get to a separate segment on that in a minute. This is uh, exactly that. So, God damn it, man. Kamala Harris absolutely embarrassing herself. Um, and there's so much I could say from every angle of this. Again, I don't think Joe Biden and Pelosi and Schumer really care about the details of the bill, which is why they let Manchin shred it 47 ways. Um, in the progressives in the House folded and, and delinked the bills. And, of course, that was the end of Build Back Better officially back then, even though now is when it's officially dead. But there were only six House progressives 
who said, I'm not voting for the traditional infrastructure bill because then we know Build Back Better is not going to pass. So it's just absolutely pathetic. It really is. Um, credit to Charlemagne, man. Credit to Charlemagne for asking real questions. And um, you saw how angry she got there. You saw how angry Kamala Harris got. If it was that Kamala Harris who was angry, and she was angry fighting for the specific policies of Build Back Better, like child care, elder care, lowering prescription drug prices, uh, Medicare expansion, so on and so forth, then we'd all like her and support her. But she never has the anger for that. She has the anger for people who are pointing out the charade and the facade and the kabuki theater of what goes on behind the scenes. So, ultimately, all she cares about is her own political ambitions. And within the Democratic Party, they have an ethos of you don't go after um, conservative Democrats and right-wing Democrats and corporatist Democrats. And it's so clear here. Compare this with Republicans. If there was a Republican who wouldn't hop on board with Trump's tax cuts, which, by the way, I think they all did, but if there was any that wouldn't, they'd make that person public enemy number one. And they'd go after them ruthlessly and viciously and ultimately make that person fall in line. The Democrats are institutionally weak because they're also serving the same corporate donors. And so you're not supposed to go after the right-wing Democrats. All you do is chastise and berate and go after the left-wing Democrats to try to make them more right-wing and make them more corporate. And this is such a great example of it here. Joe Manchin has repeatedly spit in the eye of Democratic leadership. Their response every single time is, may I have another, please? She'd rather get mad at Charlemagne for a real question than get mad at Joe, Biden, uh, Joe Manchin for effectively tanking the Democratic agenda. So listen, it's going to be a total blowout in 2022 and possibly in 2024. And they have nobody to blame but themselves. And even Democratic-aligned media, like Charlemagne's politics, I'm sure, are not my politics. I'm sure he's much more standard partisan Democrat. But even he sees the writing on the wall, and he's giving them a heads up. And the response is to kill the messenger, as opposed to take it to heart and adjust course moving forward. So can't say they weren't warned. And by the way, this is an opinion that I'm sure nobody ever expresses to them, so they're actually maybe somewhat shocked by it, that this is what you think, and this is what you fear will happen. And wow, I, I didn't see that coming. Well, it's because you guys all have DC brain rot and you're corrupted. And so things that seem obvious to everybody else seem insane to you. Because the narrative you're used to hearing is it's always the left's fault, it's always the left's fault, it's always the left's fault. And then now you're getting the dose of reality that in the real world, Americans and the Democratic base are blaming Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And instead of going after them, naming the enemy, maybe even prosecuting them for their various crimes, you protect them. Well, chickens are coming home to roost. You made your bed and now you're going to sleep in it. Insert other platitude about what goes around comes around because it's happening, man. It's happening. So massive credit again to Charlemagne uh, asking real questions. And you see how angry she got and you see how defensive she got and you see how she had no real answer. All right, next.
I'm not going to sugarcoat it for everybody. Joe Manchin effectively ended Joe Biden's presidency, and he was laughing as he did it and pissing on its ashes. So let's take a look at an appearance he made on Fox News where he explained, I'm pretty much a no under every circumstance now on Build Back Better. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. Now, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Senator, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Good to be with you, Brett. Senator, you're at the center of this uh, negotiation with the president over his social spending and tax bill, a bill, the Build Back Better bill that is not coming up uh, in the Senate before the new year, in part largely because of your reservations. Without you, the leadership doesn't have the votes it needs. So today, right now, what's the state of play? Well, Brett, you know, this is a mammoth piece of legislation, and I have my reservations from the beginning when I heard about it five and a half months ago, and I've been working diligently every day and every minute of every day. I've been working on this, meeting with whether it be the President, President Biden, whether it be Majority Leader Schumer and his staff, whether it be with Nancy Pelosi, uh, all of my colleagues, I mean, from all different spectrums of, of the political spectrum, if you will, from the right to the left. I've done everything humanly possible. And you know my concerns I had, and I still have these concerns. And where I'm at right now, the inflation that I was concerned about, it's not transitory, it's real, it's harming every West Virginian. It's making it almost difficult for them to continue to go to their jobs, the cost of gasoline, the cost of groceries, the cost of utility bills. All of these things are hitting in every aspect of their life. And, and, you, and you start looking, and then, then you have the uh, debt that we're carrying at, at $29 trillion. You have also the geopolitical unrest that we have. You have the COVID, the COVID uh, variant, uh, and that is wreaking havoc again. People are concerned. I've been with my family. I know everyone's concerned. So when you have these things coming at you the way they are right now, uh, I've always said this, Brett, if I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. There it is. Now, I warned you this would happen. There were only six progressives in the House who voted no on the traditional infrastructure bill, knowing that when you dealing traditional infrastructure from reconciliation, reconciliation isn't going anywhere. Um, they warned you this would happen. And here it is. Right in front of our eyes. Exactly what the left said would come to pass is coming to pass. So for Pramila Jayapal, Ro Khanna, all the lefties, nominal lefties who fell in line, how do you feel? How do you look? Are you embarrassed? You should be embarrassed. We warned you this would happen. I did a segment at the time, and I said, either... They'll just turn around and say, oh, I know I gave you my word. I'm going to vote for Bill Back Better and that we'd get the details worked out. But um, I'm going back on it. I'm not going to do it. Sorry. Either that was going to happen or the other possibility was take the bill that was already watered down, I believe, four times, water it down even more, pass that, and then turn around to the progressives in the House and say, it's this or nothing. So, uh, you know, the left wanted $10 trillion. Then Bernie said, like, okay, let's do seven. Then we got a negotiation down to 3.5. Then it got down to like a little over two. Now we're talking about 1.75 or 1.8. So I guess it was five times that it was weakened. 
Um, and then ultimately they could have passed like a $900 billion bill or $1.2 trillion or something and turned around to, to progressives and said, this is the best we're going to get, so fall in line. But we didn't even get that. We didn't even get that. We got, I'm not for any version of this bill is what Joe Manchin is saying. Stop and think about that. This bill was changed a bunch of times to accommodate Joe Manchin to get his vote. And even after they gave him everything, he turns around and says, well, I'm not in favor of that. So you lied. So you lied. When you said, we'll work out the details, don't worry, you have my word, you lied about that. You're a liar. That's what you are. Now, his objections are the even more infuriating part, because every one of his objections are not a real objection. So let's go through it. Inflation. He says, look, I'm worried about inflation. Okay, well, guess what? The Build Back Better bill has virtually no impact on inflation. That's not me speaking. That's top economist speaking. Now, what's the actual cause of inflation? You've heard me say this a million times, but it's the supply chain. The supply chain is giving us inflation. Because you have increased demand, more people are ordering stuff from home, and you have a lot of the ports are clogged because during COVID there was a bunch of PPE that was shipped everywhere. And then now, since there's an increased demand and not enough goods because there were lockdowns in various places around the world, um, you have low supply, increased demand, clogged ports, boom, there you have inflation. Now, beyond that, it's also corporate greed that's leading to inflation. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. It's been reported on by Business Insider, among many other places. You have like outlets like Walmart, for example, are raising their prices, not necessarily because certain goods um, are impacted by inflation, but they see inflation as a good scapegoat to just raise prices and increase profits, and that's reflected in the corporate profits that we see right now. So corporate profits are at a record high right now because they're using the excuse of inflation to jack up virtually all prices, even for goods that aren't impacted by inflation. So you have corporate greed. You also have monopolies, too, by the way, are leading to inflation. When you have only like three or four um, meatpacking companies and they could just jack the prices, there's no competition, competition would drive down the price. Well, so it's monopolies, it's corporate greed, and it's the supply chain leading to inflation. It has nothing to do with the COVID rescue bills, the big spending bills. It has nothing to do with them. That's a fact. This isn't Kyle talking, because my instinct was actually to think maybe Manchin is right. Maybe it is the big spending bills that are leading to inflation. Every time I talk to economists and experts, they make perfectly clear that has nothing to do with that. So you could be forgiven if you're watching the show and you thought, well, hey, maybe that's what's leading to inflation. But when the experts describe in very clear detail how that's not the case, you go, oh, okay, I guess I was wrong. Joe Manchin, now I don't know if he knows it or doesn't know, know it, but he might know that the, the big spending isn't leading to inflation, and he's just using this as a scapegoat. That's very likely what he's doing. How do I know that? Well, he brings up gasoline and utility bills as well. What the hell does the price of gasoline have to do with Build Back Better? What the hell does the price of utility bills have to do with Build Back Better? If anything, Build Back Better would help people with their utility bills. Why? Because you're taking certain bills off the table for people. With the original Build Back Better bill, child care, elder care, um, lowering the Medicare age, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, these are things that help working people. It's not going to hurt them in terms of being able to afford their utility bill. It's going to make it so they can afford their utility bill. Much more likely to afford it if you have Build Back Better passed. Then we really drop off a clip because he brings up uh, the debt. He says, look, we got $29 trillion in debt, so uh, you know, that concerns me. Well, hold on now. First of all, real economists will tell you, the way you run a sovereign nation with its own currency is not the same as a household. So yeah, you need to make sure you balance your checkbook. The government doesn't have to do that. We are the world reserve currency. We have our own sovereign currency. And what we learned from Keynesian economics and MMT and other schools of economic thought is that especially when there's an economic downturn or there's a problem like a pandemic or something, the, gov the government is the spender of last resort, and that gives a spark to the economy. 
So you're supposed to deficit spend in many situations. This is one of those situations, which is why you saw not only Biden deficit spend, but Trump was deficit spending too. And to bring up, so he doesn't know, I'm not sure he knows the difference between the national debt and the deficit, which is different. Deficit is the yearly amount that you're in the red. Uh, national debt is the total accumulation of debt since the founding of the nation. Virtually every nation on earth has a giant national debt. Japan, they've been predicting a debt crisis in Japan for decades. It never came. Why? They have their own sovereign currency. And so when they, uh, when they deficit spend, it's not the problem that people pretend it's going to be. So I don't know if he knows the difference between the national debt and the deficit. But either way, to be concerned about it, Joe Manchin just voted for the military bill. The military bill over a 10-year period, which is the same period for Build Back Better that we talk about when we give the price tag on that, is over $7 trillion. It's between 7 and $8 trillion. So he voted for a 7 to $8 trillion bill, but he won't vote for one that's a shy of $2 trillion? No, see, it's an excuse. The other thing, he's worried about the, the deficit and the debt. He just voted for the traditional infrastructure bill, which adds over $200 billion to the deficit. So he's lying to you. This isn't a real concern. He's giving himself an out. He's using a Weasley argument to give himself an out for a piece of legislation he never wanted to vote for anyway. Now, why doesn't he want to vote for it? Well, The Intercept had a great article called Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire, where they lay out no uncertain terms. This guy makes a bunch of money, likely millions of dollars, from dirty energy. There's climate provisions in this legislation, originally, which may have hurt the fossil fuel industry. He doesn't want to tank the fossil fuel industry because that tanks his bottom line. So he's corrupt. He's corrupt. He has conflicts of interest. Did you know that over the past decade, over 50 billionaires have donated to Joe Manchin? He's representing them. He's not representing his constituents. And he says, oh, if I can't explain it, I can't vote for it. If you can't explain it, you can't vote for it. Okay, well, I got news for you. The vote you're not going to be able to explain is the vote that you say you're going to take now, that you're going to vote against it. Because I have the numbers in front of me. There was a poll done by Data for Progress not too long ago on um, Build Back Better in West Virginia. They went specifically to West Virginia. Get this. West Virginia voters who support Build Back Better, 68% Democratic West Virginia voters who support it, 90%. Independents who support it, 64%. Get this, I love this one. Republican voters in West Virginia who support Build Back Better, 56%. The vote that you can't explain, Joe Manchin, is the one that you just said you'd cast a no on Build Back Better. And by the way, I'm giving you the broad breakdown of Build Back Better. They polled and asked about Build Back Better. That was the reaction. When you actually go provision by provision, it's even more popular than, than this leads on. So look, call it what it is. The guy's corrupt. He was given free reign to destroy the bill in a thousand different ways. He does that, and then he still turns around and says, I'm not for it. So Joe Biden... Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, in the words of Tombstone, are you going to do something about it or are you just going to stand there and bleed? And the answer is they're going to stand there and bleed. Now, listen, I don't think uh, Democratic leadership really wanted the $3.5 trillion bill because they didn't fight for the $3.5 trillion bill. What I think they really wanted was basically a very slimmed down version of Build Back Better, probably around a trillion dollars or so. So in other words, their politics, uh, they thought aligned with Joe Manchin that we'll have a very slimmed down Build Back Better bill. Um, but now Joe Manchin's like, no, I'm not in favor of that. I'm not in favor of a massively slimmed down bill. And so now you have some real friction, some real disagreement between Democratic leadership and Joe Manchin. Well, what are you going to do about it? 
what are you going to do? The answer is you're not going to do anything because they don't have the stones. They're not FDR. They're not LBJ. They don't know how to arm twist. So uh, things you could do, I, t- I ran through this a million times. Uh, Joe Manchin's daughter is a criminal. She was involved in the EpiPen price gouging scandal. Investigator, prosecutor, convictor, you can. The dirt's there. We have her dead to rights caught on email talking about this stuff. Joe Manchin, I have no doubt he actually committed crimes. Real conflicts of interest, real corruption, personally profiting when he sits on a committee where he can determine the future of the United States in regards to the climate. Go after him. Prosecute him. Now, uh, if you think, well, that's not a good idea, that won't work. Okay, well, the other thing is uh, use public pressure. To this point, everybody's been going soft. The only time Joe Manchin flipped out in this entire debate was when Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed in a West Virginia newspaper calling him out and saying, look, this is the right thing to do, and he should do it. Behind the scenes, Joe Manchin lost it when Bernie did that. What does that show? It's a weak point. You touched a nerve. So he feels like that for a reason. So why not do rallies there? Why not do rallies there in support of Build Back Better? Why not call him corrupt? Why not call him, uh, you know, the plutocrats Democrat or whatever? Uh, do a public pressure campaign. Threaten to primary him and give all the support of the Democratic Party to a primary challenger. There are things you could do. There are paths you could take, but you have to actually want it and you have to do the work. And I don't think they want it that bad, and I definitely don't think they're going to do the work, and they don't have it in them. All Biden has in him is backslapping and calling him JoJo, and this is what that got us. So um, Joe Manchin has officially ended the Biden presidency, and he's pissing on its ashes. And to answer the Charlemagne question, when he asked Kamala Harris, who's the real president, Biden or Manchin? Well, now you know. It's Joe Manchin. If the Democrats are only as good as their most conservative Democrat in the caucus, well, then you need to make them bend the knee by any means necessary. And if you're not going to do that, I don't want to hear about how much you support various provisions that are good for the people. You don't, because you're not really lifting a finger to get those things through. I get that governing's not easy. Okay, so work harder. But again, you have to care, you have to want it, and they don't really want it that bad. So Joe Manchin spits in everybody's eye, and uh, we'll get away with it. He'll get away with it. And I'm sure Kirsten Cinema is somewhere really happy right now that now Manchin's taking all the heat. And she just got off, even though she's not really for the bill either. Look, um, the rotating villain theory is largely true. So in other words, if it wasn't Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, Warner would step up and he'd be the rotating villain. It was Joe Lieberman back in the day. This is the way it works. Um, but what that means is you need strong leadership. And you need people who actually care. And you need arm twisting and public pressure and real threats that you can back up, like prosecuting crimes. Uh, That's the only way to make it happen. FDR welcomed the hatred of the donor class, and he did everything he could to get under their skin and deliver on his agenda. Biden's not doing that. He's half asleep. Biden's half asleep, and Kamala's on some stupid talk show talking about her personal story. That's the way it works. Okay. Bernie Sanders spoke to Jake Tapper after Joe Manchin came out and announced, I'm going to vote no on Build Back Better. There's nothing you can do to the bill that would make me uh, be in favor of it. So in other words, Manchin's a liar because he said, yeah, I'll, yeah, let's, we'll work it out. I promise you have my word. Well, what's your word worth? Nothing. Um, so ban- uh, Bernie talks to Jake Tapper, and for the first time, 
finally, now granted, this is way too little too late, but this is the thing he should have been doing for a much longer time. He calls Joe Manchin corrupt, and he goes in. Well, I think he's going to have a lot of explaining to do to the people of West Virginia. To tell them why he doesn't have the guts to take on the drug companies and lower the cost of prescription drugs. Why he has not been prepared to expand home health care. West Virginia is one of the poorest states in this country. You have elderly people and disabled people who would like to stay home or forced into nursing homes. He's going to have to tell the people of West Virginia why he doesn't want to expand Medicare to cover dental, hearing, and eyeglasses. I've been to West Virginia a number of times, and it's a great state, beautiful people, but it is a state that is struggling. And he's going to have to tell the people of West Virginia why he's rejecting what the scientists of the world are telling us, that we have to act boldly and transform our energy system to protect future generations from the devastation of climate change. You know, what's going on now, Jake, in Washington is a big money interest of pouring hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that we continue to pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs that the rich do not stop paying their fair share of taxes. And I would have hoped that we could have had at least 50 Democrats on board who had the guts to stand up for working families and take on the lobbyists and the powerful special interests. We have no Republicans, not one Republican in the United States Senate or the House for that matter, is prepared to stand up for the drug companies or the insurance companies or the wealthy. I would hope we would have had 50 Democrats. But if that is the case, then I hope that we will bring a strong bill to the floor of the Senate as soon as we can and let Mr. Manson explain to the people of West Virginia why he doesn't have the guts to stand up for the powerful specialists. Oh, so you want to vote on it no matter what, even, even if... Absolutely. Absolutely. The American people have got to understand what is at stake. For decades now, what Congress has been doing, giving tax breaks to the rich, not standing up to the drug companies, so that we end up paying the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs, ignoring climate change, the President of the United States, and almost every Democrat is trying, finally, to address these issues. Did you know that the Senator doesn't want to support us? Well, look, we've been dealing with this dimension for month after month after month. But if he doesn't have the courage to do the right thing for the working families of West Virginia and America, let him vote no in front of the whole world. So how do you tell somebody out there watching, wondering, how come you couldn't get Joe Manchin on board? Well, if I did the case, we're taking on not just Joe Manchin, we're taking on, you know what's funny, the pharmaceutical industry has spent in the last year on lobbying alone over $300 million plus campaign contributions, plus all kinds of advertising. Fossil fuel industry is spending a fortune. Let's not get ourselves. We got a corrupt, we have a corrupt political system dominated by big money interests. And finally, some of us are saying, let's stand up for working families, average workers, not seen a pay raise in inflation accounted for dollars in 45 years, while the rich are becoming phenomenally rich. The corporate profits are at all-time highs. And what some of us are saying, maybe, maybe, we'll stand up for working families for a change. But apparently, we don't have the 50 votes that we need. And I think we take that message right into the 2022 campaign. Which party, with the exception maybe of one or two people, which party is prepared to do the right thing for the elderly, for the children? And by the way, we talked about this. I want everybody out there to know, if this man should vote no, those $300 tax credits that have gone a long way to reducing childhood poverty in America, they're gone. Mm-hmm. That's over. We cut childhood poverty by over 40%, an extraordinary accomplishment. Manchin doesn't want to do that. Tell that to the struggling families of West Virginia and America. So you're suggesting he doesn't have the guts to stand up for working families and to take on uh, the money interests. If Senator Manchin were here, he would say, my state is a state that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. What I'm doing and going after and opposing this legislation will be popular. And Manchin has said he thinks so, all, all this money, he's saying all this money is going, to, is going, to, make, is going to make inflation work. I, well, let me talk about it. Joe Manchin voted for a huge increase in military spending. Manchin voted for an infrastructure bill, which added $250 billion to the deficit. 
The truth of the matter is that if you look at the military budget, $770 billion times that by 10 years, it is four times higher than what the Build Back Better plan is. Now, you know, Mr. Manchin says he's representing the people of West Virginia. Okay, why don't you do a poll? If CNN do a poll, and you ask the people of West Virginia whether or not they want to lower the cost of prescription drugs. You ask them whether they want to expand Medicare to cover dental, hearing, and eyeglasses. You ask them whether they want to continue the $300 payment to help working parents in these very difficult times bring up their kids with dignity. Ask them if they want to deal with climate change. Mm-hmm. On all of those issues, I suspect people of West Virginia, like every other state in this country, will say, yes, do the right thing for working parents. Is it? You don't have to suspect it, Bernie. We know. As I just discussed, there was uh, polling done by Data for Progress not too long ago on Build Back Better. West Virginia likely voters, 68% of them support Build Back Better. 90% of Democrats, 64% of independents, and even 56% of Republicans support Build Back Better in West Virginia. West Virginia, yes, it's a Republican state. It's a Trump state. But they also have a strong labor history in that state union history and they used to only vote for democrats and so they have very uh, unorthodox or heterodox politics and we're going to get to a story on that later where the media spoke to a trump supporter in west virginia about build back better biden's agenda and you're going to be surprised as to what that trump voter thinks about build back better and what he wants joe manchin to do so we know based on the numbers that joe manchin is not a west virginia democrat He's a Goldman Sachs Democrat. He's a corporate Democrat. So he's representing industry over his constituents. We know that. You don't need to do another poll. I mean, you can, and the the results will be exactly the same, but we already have the information. And so, yes, when Bernie says, okay, go explain to the people of West Virginia what you're doing, he's right that they're going to say, I don't like it. So let's go through a lot of what he says here. Makes a lot of great points, calls him corrupt. It is too little, too late. Um, But he's wrong about one big thing that, that we'll get to, okay? But uh, he says, listen, this is about elder care, home care, lower drug prices, Medicare expansion. These are all things that would help West Virginia voters, and Manchin is against them. He brings up big pharma's lobbying here, and Joe Manchin doesn't have the guts and he doesn't have the courage to take on the moneyed interest. That's right. In fact, he's doing their bidding. He even uses the word corrupt there when talking about Joe Manchin and when talking about our political system and the process. Um, Bernie's plan is to vote on it anyway even though we know Manchin's going to vote against it. And, I mean, that's fine, but Manchin's going to vote against it. You know, uh, it's not like if you force the vote on this, which you should do, um, the result is going to be that it's going to fail. And maybe now Kirsten Cinema feels like she has cover, so she might vote for it, just to put, so all the blame goes on Manchin. Uh, or maybe she'll also vote against it. But he's not going to vote for it. And that is a complete and utter failure, not just of Joe Manchin, but also of Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and even Bernie Sanders. Because, you know, they were convinced behind the scenes that backslapping with Joe Manchin, calling him JoJo and weakening the bill in a thousand ways, that that would get his vote. Left critics all along said, number one, you can't de-link the bills, but also this strategy isn't going to work with Joe Manchin, which is why I've been on this show, uh, you know, screaming my head off about, you got to threaten to prosecute his daughter for her EpiPen price gouging. you got to threaten to prosecute Joe Manchin for his conflicts of interest and his rampant corruption. You have to use the bully pulpit. If you don't want to go that route, then you have to go the route of massive public pressure. Let him know, look, we'll primary you and we'll put all the Democratic funds into the opponent against you, and you're going to lose if you do that. 
Um, we're going to go on the media and demonize you and say, you're the problem, you're the villain, you're representing industry, you're not representing the voters. If a Republican steps out of line for a major piece of Republican legislation, they make that person public enemy number one. And they either fall in line or defect. But you have to try. And they didn't try. You could have done rallies in uh, West Virginia. You could have went and done that. The one time Manchin, they touched a nerve with Manchin was when Bernie wrote an op-ed in West Virginia. That's when he flipped out. Okay, so that means you're on to something there. Do it again. Go do a rally. Go put pressure. Arm twist behind the scenes. Find a way. Now, here's where Bernie's wrong. He says, look, if, if this is what happens, then we have to take this message into the 2022 campaign, basically saying, like, you need more Democrats to get, the, to get this done. Bernie, Democrats had a supermajority in the Obama administration, and they didn't get the policies that the people wanted. You got a right-wing health care plan, Obamacare. You should have gotten at least a public option. Really, you should have gotten single payer. But when you had a supermajority, you didn't get Dickie McGee's acts done. So the message of that is, well, even if we have a supermajority or a slim majority, the end result is the same. So that means what do you do? It doesn't mean you're running into a brick wall and there's nothing you can do and there's no way out. It means you do what FDR did and you do what Lyndon Johnson did. Now, granted, FDR had a much bigger majority, but you have to work with what you have. To, to make a weird analogy here, and anybody, the, the 2% of my audience that's ever played golf in their life might understand this. If you're warming up, on, on the driving range, and you can't hit a straight shot, and all you're doing is hitting shots off to the right, what do you do that day? Shit, I, I keep missing to the right. I, I can't fix it while I'm here on the range. The ball's still going right. I'll just aim left on the course and play a fade all day, play a left-to-right shot all day. You have to work with what you have. So, look, this is what we have right now. We have a slim majority. Every single Democrat who's not falling in line and doing the right thing becomes public enemy number one. You crusade against them in public. You let them know you'll never have a job in Washington, D.C. again. Joe Biden should be on the phone with the industries that are thinking of hiring these people as lobbyists and saying, if you hire them as lobbyists, they are blacklisted. If you hire them as lobbyists, every single subsidy and every single tax cut that you're going to get is gone. So we're going to punish your bottom line. We're going to punish you financially if you play ball with Manchin and Cinema public pressure, rallies against them, media appearances, everything you have, every weapon in the arsenal you use. Again, the biggest one to me, to really scare the daylights out of them, is look, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. I'm going to prosecute you and your family if you don't do the right thing. And where there's smoke, there's fire. The federal government's conviction rate is through the roof, probably upwards of 90%. You want to go down in history as a corrupt goon senator? Look, either I'm going to come after you or... If you do the right thing, you'll be a hero. We'll build a fucking statue to you in West Virginia, Joe Manchin. We'll give you more money for infrastructure for your state in particular. You want somebody in your family to be in my administration? Not only will we not prosecute you if you do the right thing, whatever you want. You have a position in the administration. This is what you do. This is politics. They either don't know that or they don't care. And the reality is, when it comes to Democratic leadership, Bernie cares, but Democratic leadership does not care. Because they would rather have a slim down trillion dollar or so build back better bill. And they thought Joe Manchin would ultimately sign on to that. Now that he's not signing on to that, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to do something about it? Or are you just going to stand there and bleed? And the answer is they're going to stand there and bleed. Jesus Christ, man. Bernie also lays out Manchin is just flat out in favor of child poverty because you don't want to continue the child tax credit. So families are not going to be able to afford um, vital goods that they need. Now, uh, there's a story that just broke this morning. Apparently, Manchin behind the scenes said um, 
yeah, I want to stop the child tax credit because I think the parents are just taking the money and spending it on drugs. This is a guy who talks about entitlement culture. As he begged for a bailout for Goldman Sachs recently, by the way, how's that for entitlement? He talks about entitlement culture and he says parents are spending child tax credit money on drugs. You're telling me you're not a Republican? Then he talks about, oh, inflation. Build Back Better has nothing to do with inflation, as I've laid out a thousand times. It's the supply chain, it's monopolies, and it's corporate greed. Those are the three things that are leading to inflation. Now, me speaking, that's various experts and economists speaking. So, uh, Bernie's taking the gloves off here, but it's too little too late. This should have happened a long time ago. There should have been a deal cut behind the scenes. Um, instead, they were treating Joe Manchin like he's a genuine um, ideological actor. He's not. He's a corrupt actor. He's representing industry. He's representing lobbyists. He's representing special interests. He's representing his own bottom line with his own investments. And um, so there is no real – think about it. If he was really like a centrist or a moderate and he just wanted the bill to look a different way, they already gave him everything he wanted. So why was he still against it when they gave him everything he wanted? Because he was never actually in favor of any of it. And he got the thing he said he wanted for real, the traditional infrastructure bill, because a lot of that had giveaways to corporations in it. And as soon as you delinked the bills, you were donezo. And, uh, you know, only six progressives in the House voted against it and said, nothing's going to get passed on reconciliation now. And they were right. We were proven right. The left was proven right. Can't take this guy at his word. You can't take Joe Biden at his word either. Oh, I'll get the votes. My ass cheat, you'll get the votes. You didn't. So my message to the, dem- to the progressives who voted for it is, how you like them apples? You should be embarrassed. And um, if I'm a progressive in the House, you use whatever power you can to get the right outcome now. So what I would do if I was uh, progressive in the House, try to form a coalition of 12 or 14 left Democrats and say, listen, we're not playing around anymore. And we're trying to save your own ass here, Democratic Party and Joe Biden. Uh, We're going to block every single piece of legislation. You won't even be able to name a road or a bridge if I have something to do with it. I'm going to block everything unless you break out that executive order pen right now, legalize marijuana, which you can do through executive order, abolish all student loan debt, which you can do through executive order, expand health care, which you can do through executive order, and the list goes on and on. I'm not done. I'm going to keep going. Here's a list of 10 things. Do it all or you don't get a single thing through when you are the lamest of lame duck presidents ever. That's what you do. So Bernie's finally fighting, but it's too little too late. And um, Manchin's laughing the entire time. Okay, let's continue. Let's continue. Oh, this next one is good. Joe Manchin came out and said, look, I can't vote for Build Back Better. There's no iteration of Build Back Better that he could vote for, even if they whittled it down to $500 billion or whatever peanuts nonsense um, that – they can. Uh, he's like, no, I'm just, I'm not in favor of it. So um, there's actually rare credit here to MSNBC. You'll b- never hear those words come out of my mouth, but for this, they get it. They took the initiative of reaching out in West Virginia to real voters and asking them, hey, what do you think about this? And um, what you're going to notice here is uh, the heterodox politics in West Virginia. Yes, they're a Trump state a big Republican state, but they have a very strong union history and labor history in that state. So that means they've been voting against their own economic interests with the Republicans for a while, but they still have those, that foundation and those roots. And so it impacts the way they think about working and labor. And um, look at this. A voter who voted for Trump is asked about Build Back Better and what Joe Manchin just did, and the answer will surprise you. 
The cost of living is so high here in West Virginia now that you can't afford to buy anything. And you know, his support his support for this would help a lot of people that are struggling right now because of COVID. So, so Gary, what is the senator not hearing from his conservative constituents like you? I just I think it's all uh, you know just what he wants to hear from other other people that you know that's putting money in his pockets and not the people that actually work for West Virginia that are struggling out here. But there's a lot of people that are struggling that need this right now. Gary, I just want to uh, remind people you are a self-described conservative. Can you tell me who you voted for in the last election? Yeah, I voted for Donald Trump. Okay. I know it's going to blow a lot of your minds out there. Because when you're online, like we all are, and you're a political junkie, there's this really hyper-factionalization that happens where you start to parse through every little ideological difference between one faction of the left and another faction of the left and the broad right and, you know, the libertarian right versus the populist or fake populist right and all these different things, you look at that and you you form a mental map of the way politics works. And you don't realize that oftentimes in the real world, not online, people have very heterodox views. They're all over the fucking place. Um, And this is actually indicative of a standard West Virginia voter. Because like I said, they may be a Trump state, but they have a strong union and labor history, a lot of working class people, and they are hurting. And they take yes for an answer. So when you look at the the provisions of Build Back Better, whether it's elder care, home care, lower drug prices, Medicare expansion, child tax credit, the list goes on and on. Um, universal pre-K. This is, I'm going back to the original bill now. When you look at all that, a voter like this would look at that and say, I like those things. Those things would materially improve my life and my friends' lives. And even though I voted for Trump, I support him in every way possible, that is also true. So here is a conservative Republican telling Joe Manchin, what are you doing? Vote for the bill. What's wrong with you? And it exposes the lie of Joe Manchin's tap dance of, I'm just a West Virginia Democrat, and if I can't explain it, then I can't vote for it. Oh, you can't explain Well, what you can explain is voting no, because as I said in every segment so far today, 68% of West Virginia likely voters support Build Back Better. Uh, 90% of Democrats in West Virginia support Build Back Better. 64% of independents in West Virginia support Build Back Better. And 56% of Republicans in West Virginia support Build Back Better. A majority of Republicans support Build Back Better, and I'm not even doing full justice to the issue because, again, when you go issue for issue within the bill, it's even more popular. So Joe Manchin is not a West Virginia Democrat. He's a Goldman Sachs Democrat. He's a corporate Democrat. He's a right-wing Democrat. That's what he is. That's what he is, and he's not in favor of helping workers. So listen, you're telling me that a public pressure campaign wouldn't work when the voters are already there in West Virginia? You're telling me if Biden did a rally there or Bernie did a rally there or you get a group of Democrats to do a rally there, that that wouldn't work? You're telling me if you ran ads in West Virginia about corrupt Joe Manchin that that wouldn't work? Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed a couple months ago, and Joe Manchin had a tantrum. It was like, don't you dare do that. 
The reason he's saying that is because it touched a nerve and it would work. FDR or LBJ could have gotten Manchin to fall in line and vote for this piece of legislation months ago. Months ago. But Biden didn't because Biden doesn't really care about the specifics. Does he want Build Back Better passed? Yes. But he wants a watered-down, slim version of it, maybe a trillion dollars. And he thought Joe Manchin would ultimately sign on to that. And guess what? Joe Manchin didn't. And every excuse Joe Manchin gave was a lie. He's really representing industry. He's representing business interests. He raised money from 50 billionaires in the last decade. So are you going to do something about it, or are you just going to stand there and bleed? That's not like the fifth time I've used that reference today. But the answer is Pelosi, Schumer, and Biden will likely stand there and bleed. And going to be no arm twisting. Ain't going to be no threatens of prosecution of uh, Joe Manchin's EpiPen price gouging daughter. No threatening of prosecution of Joe Manchin himself. No carrot or stick approach. No, hey, you do the right thing, you get a freaking statue and more infrastructure money in West Virginia and whatever you want. None of that. None of that. The Biden administration is going to go out like he came in with a fucking whimper. Look, the best stuff he did, he did early on. He reversed all of Trump's executive orders. He cut the $1,400 checks. Lied about that, said it would be 2000 it was 1400 But still, people appreciated it just because they're getting money and they need money. First, uh, you know, COVID rescue bill was not bad. Way better than the Trump ones, which were even more uh, corporate heavy, supporting corporations over people. Um, but look, what have you done for me lately is what people are saying. And the Democrats are going to get absolutely obliterated in the midterms. And it's because of Manchin and Cinema, but also because of the fecklessness and the weakness of the Democratic leadership. This is what you get with neoliberal rot. We're seeing it in front of our eyes. When you have a conservative Republican Trump voter in West Virginia who is more lefty on economics than the Democratic president and then a Democratic senator, that's a real problem. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I got a lot more for you. I think we're just getting off of the mansion stuff, or we have one more that's tangentially related to it. And then we'll get to uh, Huckabee and Trump and Tucker and a whole bunch of other stuff. Stay right there. We will be right back.
All right, we're back, y'all. We are back. We are back. Let's keep it going. Keep it going. Um, let's talk about the Obama administration official, David Axelrod, who uh, showed everybody his ass. An Obama administration, an Obama administration, an Obama administration official, uh, David Axelrod, he uh, accidentally told the truth about Democrats here, and he's too stupid to realize what he did. So take a look. In 2009 and 2010, we had 59, and at times, 60 Democratic senators and a huge majority in the House and still had a momentous battle to enact the ACA, that's Obamacare. Today, both chambers are evenly divided, which makes doing something as ambitious as Build Back Better even harder. Think about what he just said. He just told you, look, we had a supermajority and we couldn't get anything done. So obviously with just a standard majority, we're not going to be able to get anything done. Vote Democrat. You just gave away the game, David. You just gave away the game. What is it about Democrats in leadership positions that makes them think this is okay and that this is a reason to vote Democrat harder? If you look at what's going on now, Democratic leadership's response is vote harder. But now you have somebody who was in Democratic leadership saying, even if you vote harder, we're not going to be able to get anything done. Because Obamacare was a right-wing health care reform. That idea of the individual mandate system came from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. Chuck Grassley and Newt Gingrich used to support that idea. The left position is single-payer. And then if you compromise off that, it's a public option. They couldn't get single-payer or public option. They just did the Republican version of the reform with a supermajority and zero Republican votes. So what lesson does that teach? Neoliberal Democrats, no matter how many you have in there, you're not going to get the stuff you want. So you're accidentally admitting here and telling people you shouldn't even vote for us. Pathetic. Pathetic. And listen, he told the truth. This is the truth. So what does that mean? Because what we do with that information is the most important. What that means is you have to work with what you have. And so the idea that it just wasn't possible at all under any circumstance to get a public option or single payer under the Obama administration, that's just false. That's just factually wrong. But thing number one you needed was a Democratic president who actually believed in those things, and Obama didn't believe in those things. He didn't. What you need now in the Biden administration is President Biden to actually believe in the various provisions of the original Build Back Better deal. Elder care, home care, universal pre-K, child care, uh, paid time off, Medicare expansion, expanded child tax credit. I don't think Joe Biden really gave a shit about the original Build Back Better bill. I think he didn't want $3.5 trillion. He wanted like $1 trillion because his whole career he's been a 
center-right Democrat. He himself is a corporate Democrat. So his tastes, I'm sure, were much more in alignment with what Joe Manchin said he supported than Joe Biden led on. And so if you don't really want the original bill, you're not going to fight for it. If you really wanted the bill and you cared about the specifics in the bill and the details, what you could have done is the thing I've said in roughly 100 segments so far on this show, is you could have done the character stick approach with Joe Manchin to make him do it, character stick approach with Kirsten Cinema to make her do it. Look, if you don't vote for it, I know you committed crimes. We're going to prosecute you. We're going to come after you. You want to think about how you stab the American people in the back behind bars? Because that's what's going to happen. You're going to be behind bars. Your daughter, Joe Manchin, that'd be Penn Price Gouger. She's going to prison. We're going after her. Now, maybe we won't, but here's how you won't go to prison. You vote for the bill. But guess what? I'm going to sweeten the pot. If you do vote for the bill, you know what? I'm going to give you a statue in West Virginia, and I'm going to give you more infrastructure money for West Virginia to improve the um, you know, public roads there. Um, I'm going to give you or family member a position in my administration. You'll get whatever you want if you vote for the bill. If you don't vote for it, your life's going to be a living hell. You'll never be able to step foot in Washington, D.C. again. You won't be able to go get a cushy lobbyist job because I'm going to call all the uh, big companies in the country and tell them you're blacklisted. I'm the president of the United States. I have phenomenal power, and I'm willing to use it. So do the right thing. Now, if that's a little too hardball for you, it shouldn't be, but if that is a little too hardball for you, there's another option, which is public pressure. That's it. Rallies in West Virginia run ads in West Virginia, calling him corrupt Joe Manchin, show his conflicts of interest, show his ties to the fossil fuel industry. You know, there's a million ways to get them to do the right thing. There really are. But they didn't care enough. They didn't want it enough. And so this idea of just vote harder, no, because the details matter, the specifics matter. If you have either a slim majority or a supermajority, you need to make them bend the knee, but that implies you actually care. So in other words, the leadership comes from the top down. You have to have a Democratic president who actually believes in these things. With Barack Obama, he didn't believe in these things. With Joe, Joe Biden, he didn't believe in these things. So that's why you never got the fight. So you have to have somebody who believes in the right things, and then they also have leadership skills and know how to twist arms, know how to play politics. Since those two things are missing, those two ingredients were missing, whether it's with Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or Joe Biden, this is why we get the ratchet effect effectively in the country. What, what does that mean? That means Republicans go in, they turn the dial more towards bad things, and then Democrats come in, and best case scenario, they, they just stop the movement further in a bad direction. So they don't improve anything. They just, like, stop the fast bleeding out of the country. That's what, that's what the ratchet effect is. Now, that's more or less correct. Like, in some instances, in some ways, Biden did improve things slightly, the raising the minimum wage for the uh, federal employees to $15 an hour. That's 400,000 people who got a raise. Uh, pulling out of Afghanistan, that is a step in the right direction. Massively limiting the drone war, that is a step in the right direction. So in some ways, he improved it. But then in other ways, he kept things the same, or even in some instances, made things worse. So roughly speaking give or take some ticks in the right direction and some ticks in the wrong direction, uh, the ratchet effect is correct. The Democrats don't make things better and Republicans keep making things worse. So that's the problem. The problem is with leadership. It starts from the top down and you don't have leaders who actually believe in anything serious. So here we are.
So thank you, David Axelrod, for accidentally telling the truth, giving up the game. Vote for us and we'll do the things. And then Democrats have the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and they're not doing anything with it. And then it's, well, give us the supermajority and we'll, we'll do something. And then what happens? When you have a supermajority, you're going to run into the same thing. The, the mansions, the cinemas, the Warners, and so that you have to work with what you have, but that presupposes you actually believe in what you say you believe in. And with Obama, he didn't. With Biden, he didn't. If Bernie was in there, it would be a different story. We would have had much better legislation. In some ways, would a President Bernie Sanders be a letdown? I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, I don't think he would have been as aggressive as FDR. I don't think he has those same leadership qualities that FDR has. But you bet your ass, even through executive orders, he would have done a number of phenomenal things that we'd all love, including abolishing student debt, including legalizing marijuana. So you need somebody who believes the right things and has leadership skills and is willing to crack the whip and make the Democrats bend the knee to the party leader. We don't have that. So David Axelrod, thank you for accidentally telling the truth here and letting us know that any old blue won't do. This is what David Axelrod could have typed. Any old blue won't do. That's it. That's what he's saying. Couldn't get anything with 60 votes. Can't get anything with 51. Vote for us again. Not that simple. Not just vote for us again. It would be you actually have to have ones who believe in the right things, or at least a leader who believes in the right things, and then, then we'll get stuff done. But David Axelrod is of the milk toast neoliberal variety, so to him this is all fine and dandy. He's okay with this thing being tanked, as you can tell from his tweet, the tone of his tweet. Like, what do you want from us? We couldn't get it done then, we can't get it done now. Vote Democrat. That's not as convincing as you think it is, David Axelrod. All right, let's have some fun. Let's have some fun, y'all. Mike Huckabee um, did an interview of Donald Trump. I have to admit, I love this. This is my guilty pleasure. When you have, like, real massive idiots interviewing other massive idiots. Um, <laughs> I love the sappy music you're going to hear in the background. Like, why did you add that? That's, that's absurd. Uh, but then also, note the line of questioning. It's not even questioning. It's like ball coddling. Notice the line of ball coddling here from Huckabee. Uh, This is glorious. America had gone through a long period where people quit saying Merry Christmas, all happy holidays. You deliberately changed that and openly said, Merry Christmas, we're going to say it again. Wait a minute. Part of my campaign, like the country had started with this woke, I guess, uh, a little bit before that. Yeah. And it was embarrassing for... Stores to say Merry Christmas, you see these big chains, they want your money, but they don't want to say Merry Christmas. And they'd use reds and they'd use whites and snow, but they wouldn't say Christmas. And when I started campaigning, this was in 2015, when I started campaigning, I said, you're going to say Merry Christmas again. And now people are saying it, of course, but they're not saying a lot of other things like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. But uh, they are saying Merry Christmas again. We got that. That was a big part of what I was doing. And I would say it all the time during that period that we want them to say Merry Christmas. Don't shop at stores that don't say Merry Christmas. And I'll tell you, we brought it back very quickly. You really did. (laughs) I think a lot of people appreciated that. It was a part of the American culture. It was a part of who we are. It wasn't 
uh, to exclude anybody. It was just simply a celebration of what America does at Christmas. And America and the world, but America loves Christmas. Yeah. And whether you're Muslim, whether you're Christian, whether you're Jewish, everyone loves Christmas. And they'd say Merry Christmas until these crazy people came along and they wanted to stop it along with everything else. So I was very proud of that, actually. Remember, I used to say, we will say Merry Christmas again in front of these massive crowds of people. Come on, man. It's just it's too perfect. The one upside, look, Democrats are pathetic. Um, they're going to get blown out in 2022, maybe in 2024 as well, too early to sell for 2024. But um, the one thing that Democrats have going for them is that, yes, Trump is the leader by far and away on the right. He's still the head person in the Republican Party, and if he runs, he'll probably sweep the primary pretty easily. But he has, there has been a, a change in Trump. He's gone full Fox News grandpa since being president. Like, there was a time when, I've made this comparison before, but go look at the 2016 closing ad from Trump and go look at the um, 2020 closing ad from Trump. The 2016 closing ad from Trump is way better. It's like not even, a lot of fake populism in there, you know, me versus the elites, I'm with the regular people, that type of stuff. And 2020 was just like Fox News grandpa. Um, This is full Fox News grandpa stuff. I mean, the sappy music in the background, we brought back Merry Christmas, and we did it very, very quickly. Come on, bro. Uh, so what percentage of the American people celebrate Christmas? 93%. 93%. The idea that there was, you know, some reduction in saying Merry Christmas, people being too politically correct around it or whatever, that's totally made up. It's completely made up. Um, Obama used to say Merry Christmas all the time. I think what most people say is Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Uh, so that it's, it's like a, hey, Merry Christmas, because 93% of us celebrate Christmas. The Happy Holidays part is like, for the 7% that don't, yeah, Happy Holidays to you. By the way, even if, people, even if some people don't say it, who cares? Why would you care? You, if you celebrate it and you like it, say Merry Christmas. Nobody cares. But if, if somebody doesn't celebrate it, like, what are you going to do? Chastise them? Yell at them? Say it! Say Merry Christmas! What? I mean, this is from the people, free speech, free speech, free speech. And, you know, we don't want any compelled speech. Don't make me use your uh, gender pronouns. And then it's like, say Merry Christmas, damn it. Say it. Say it. There is no... There is no war on Christmas. There's this great old John Stewart joke, which I always remember. He was talking about how the idea there's a war on Christmas is insane. Christmas is so big, it's literally eating other holidays. People start putting up Christmas decorations, in many cases, before Thanksgiving is over. I've seen that. I see that all the time. It'll be early November, and you're in some shopping center, and you already see the Christmas decorations up. There is no war on Christmas. If anything, Christmas is the imperialist holiday overtaking other holidays. And by the way, look, I, we, we don't need to get into all this. I've done many old segments on this, but Christmas, it has pagan roots. To the extent that experts have looked into when Jesus was born, it wasn't in December. I think, I don't remember, but I think they said it, it based on whatever historical documents they've been able to, 
to get that it appears like it might be around April or something like that. Um, this is totally imaginary, totally made up. But look, all they have is the culture war. That's it. That's all they have. Because stop and think about it. Has there been any open fighting back against Build Back Better from Republicans? No. All the fighting about Build Back Better is going on within the Democratic Party with Manchin and Cinema obstructing and a lot of Democrats on the side of, like, let's pass this thing. Republicans aren't saying anything about it. Why? Because they know they can't come out and be like, I hate child care and universal pre-K and elder care and lower prescription drug prices. So instead of talking about those things, just shift the conversation. Shift the conversation to the culture war. Pretend my opponents hate Santa. They hate him. Big jolly guy gives you presents. They're anti-present. They're anti-presents. Unbelievable. Vote for us. You believe what's going on with Mr. Potato Head? They want to call it Potato Head. Unreal. Have you been following the Dr. Seuss Wars? Have you? This is all they got, man. But I love it when it's taken to like, it's taken to the point where it looks like parody. What's happening here looks like parody with Mike Huckabee and Donald Trump. Like you couldn't, if you wrote this down and had two comedians do this skit, you could just do it verbatim and it would be a joke. Amazing. Amazing. Full Fox News grandpa effect. I don't know what percentage of the country this appeals to, but I enjoy it just because it's so hilarious. Okay. Next. Now we switch to a slightly more serious, not slightly more serious topic, very more serious topic. Um, Tucker Carlson uh, had a guest on his show here, and they were talking about This is now a go-to issue for the right. Problem with the military in the U.S. is that it's too damn woke. That's the problem. The problem is not that we just basically signed over a blank check to the military-industrial complex where Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Honeywell, and all these corporations are getting really wealthy. And the problem with the military is not that it's bigger than the next 12 biggest militaries combined, even though most of those military are our allies. The problem with the military is not our 800 or 900 military bases around the world. It's not the shadow war we're currently doing in Africa. It's not the seven different countries that we're in. That's not the problem with the military. The problem with the military is trans people and women in the military. So listen to what this guy says here. Take note of the part on China, because this is something else. Do you think the key to remaining competitive with the Chinese military is more gender advisors? Well, there's no question, Tucker. I mean, China right now and Russia, they're both testing hypersonic missiles that can turn New York City to ash. Uh, Russia is actually developing and has developed satellites that can push our satellites out of orbit and completely cripple our military. Our military, though, they're focused on the important things. We want to focus on climate change, and we definitely have to make sure there are enough tampons in the restrooms at the Pentagon. That's kind of what they're saying. I mean, you, 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 I mean, I don't know. There's a psychological term for this, and it escapes my memory at the moment. But where there's a massive, real threat that you can't deal with, so you scurry off and deal with imaginary threats to make yourself feel in control. That kind of feels like what we're watching. Well, what we're watching is the destruction of the U.S. military, and what we're going to end up seeing, Tucker, is thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans die. That's those are the stakes of the game we're playing here. We don't need a military that's woman-friendly. We don't need a military that's gay-friendly, with all due respect to the Air Force. We need a military that's flat-out hostile. 
We need a military full of type A men who want to sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. But we don't, we don't have that now. Sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. Yeah, let's mass kill Chinese people and sit on a throne of their skulls. This is a guy, Tucker Carlson, who pretends like he's anti-war from time to time in regards to Iran, in regards to Iraq. You have somebody on his show say something bloodthirsty and genocidal, and it's a giggle. Sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. Imagine you say that about, shit, any other country. What? We need a military that wants to sit on a throne of Israeli skulls. People be like, what? Sit on a throne of Jewish skulls. Excuse you? What? But he says it about China. I didn't see any. Uh, all I saw, one person from Media Matters tweeted this on, on Twitter. And uh, I didn't see any, anybody else cover it, talk about it. Chinese skulls. Sit on the throne of Chinese skulls. Casual, bloodthirsty, uh, genocidal platitudes and conversations happening on Fox News. By the way, Tucker did this whole thing the other night. There was a uh, Republican who went on, um, it was either CNN or MSNBC, we covered the clip too, where the guy was like, let's not rule out a nuclear strike on Russia. And I covered that. And I was like, this is insane. Does this person not understand civilization ends if we have a nuclear war with Russia? Because millions of people die, then you have nuclear winter, which uh, affects people get radiation poisoning over the long term and die. The food production system uh, gets destroyed. The sun gets blocked out. Like, civilization ends if there's a nuclear war with Russia. And Tucker was like, this is crazy and genocidal. Now he has on this guy to talk about sitting on a throne of Chinese skulls. So let me get this right. Cold war in regards to Russia, bad. Cold war in regards to China, good. Advocating effectively hot war with China, good. And I love how this guy also says, this is the destruction of the U.S. military. This is the destruction of the U.S. military? The military is bigger than it has literally ever been, ever. Like I said, the military-industrial complex owns Washington, D.C. War is profitable. This is exactly what Dwight Eisenhower warned us about. Yet, small number of people get very wealthy off of war, and they bought the government, and they want more war. And so, I don't know if you guys know this, the U.S. supports 73% of the world's dictatorships. 73%. So we don't export human rights and democracy. We export tyranny and authoritarianism. This guy says this is the destruction of the U.S. military. The institution that has an iron grip on the world and is the sole superpower and is an imperialist nation. The destruction of the U.S. military is trans people in it, is women in it. They're so, they get so outraged by stuff like this, don't they? They're so outraged by it. What they're not outraged by, and in fact what they support is, sitting on a throne of Chinese skulls. God, the whole wokeness thing, the dialogue around wokeness and cancel culture, so often it's either used to override people who are just fact-checking you, so a lot of Republicans say something that's just factually wrong or incorrect, and then when you correct them, they go, this is cancel culture. Why are you being so woke? It's just a wet blanket you throw over every issue. And now it's somehow cancel culture or wokeness to allow everybody in the military who can meet the physical requirements. 
sitting on a throne of Chinese skulls. That, yeah, that's, that's what this guy wants. So he wants genocidal psychopaths in the military who are uh, trigger-happy and are ready for World War III. Again, if there's World War III, it's a wrap, guys. It's the nuclear age. We can't afford a World War III. Can't afford it. Last time was World War II, and what happened? At the end of it, we flexed our, our muscle by massacring Japanese civilians with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the nuclear bombing. And that was the idea of that was supposed to be, hey, look, if we do this again, it's a wrap on all of us. Well, at the time, we may have been the only ones that had the technology, but now a lot of countries have the technology. So we can't afford that. No matter how bloodthirsty this guy is, there is no throne of Chinese skulls without a throne of American skulls as well. But he's too stupid to get that or care because he's just a meathead idiot loser. And Tucker's more than happy to let him on to spew his genocidal talking points. Well done, Mr. Anti-War Guy on the right. All right, next. So corporate media, um, to my shock, is outraged by Pelosi defending her insider trading and corruption. Take a look at this clip. This is a free market, and people, we are a free market economy. They should be able to participate in that. i got to talk about this and bring in Andrew Rothorkin, co-anchor of Squawk Box and founder of the New York Times Dealbook. Andrew, you got to walk me through this. When you're the CEO of a publicly traded company, there are all sorts of restrictions on what you can do. When you work yep. in an investment bank, when you work as an investor, so many restrictions when it comes to personal investments. But these people, lawmakers, these are policymakers, policies that directly influence the way business is done all over the country. How is this even remotely legal? This was one of the most disappointing, and, and maybe to put it even less politely, disgraceful comments uh, and, and, and views I have heard espoused on this issue, and surprising uh, given um, uh, Pelosi's views on many other issues. Uh, we have insider trading laws for a reason. Uh, CEOs, executives cannot trade. Uh, members of the Federal Reserve now cannot trade. And yet we are allowing our politicians who do have access to inside information. They are often briefed regularly about all sorts of things that are about to happen and that they have a meaningful influence on what is about to happen and they are trading. To the extent that, that Politicians should want the public to trust them. This undermines every bit of trust. It goes to every worst expectation of corruption. And it's not even an expectation. It's real. Uh-huh. This isn't about free markets. This is about having privileged information and using it to your own personal advantage. But let's talk about even if you agree that the current laws make sense, that you should be able to buy and sell stocks, the penalties are a joke. You can make tens of millions of dollars with privileged information. And what's going to happen? You're going to get fined 200 bucks. Nothing. Wow. That is surprising. That is surprising. MSNBC going after Nancy Pelosi. That's, uh, that's how much she crossed the line here. They brought up an interesting point. You know, the Fed had a scandal recently about trading stocks. 
and then they immediately banned trading stocks. Shock, right? Um, apparently, CEOs have rules as well. I, I actually was unaware of that. Um, so what's happening here is they're like, look, other elites um, have rules and regulations that are more stringent. So this is like spitting in our face what Nancy Pelosi said here. That's all correct. That's all correct. I mean, I would ban them today from owning stocks. I would ban the revolving door. If you're going to be a public servant, you can only be a public servant. You can't then cash in as a lobbyist or whatever afterwards. You can't serve Big Pharma, and then when you leave D.C., go get paid a million dollars from Big Pharma to be an advisor or whatever. Nope. You're a public servant. You're a public servant. That's it. Because clearly you have conflicts of interest, you have corruption, and then you have politicians that only serve the interests of industry over constituents. But I will go one step further here, and this is where these people lose the plot. This is a very clear kind of personal conflict of interest and corruption. Um, But in corporate media, they have absolutely nothing to say about the more pervasive form of corruption in D.C., campaign contributions. Because, I mean, don't take my word for it. Go look at the numbers. You have Wall Street, Big Pharma, the health insurance companies, the defense contractors. When a politician, a Republican politician or a Democratic politician runs for office, the corporate wing of the party, they raise almost all of their money from industry, almost all of it. It's very rare that you get any politician on the right or the left that does grassroots fundraising. So they raise money from corporate PACs. Uh, the, the, the party institutions themselves also raise money from these special interest groups. And that is exactly why we have the debates that we have in Washington, D.C., and it's just tiny little tweaks around the edges. And even if you have a bold proposal, it gets whittled down to 20% of what it was previously. That is all because of the influence of big money. So in other words, they're not having honest ideological disagreements about the direction of the country. They're having disagreements over serving their particular donor set. That's why really popular ideas just get stripped, whether it's Medicare expansion, child care, universal pre-K, um, elder care, like all these things just get watered down or totally axed because they're not serving the people. If they were serving the people, all these things would already be law. We'd already have universal health care. We'd already have universal background checks on gun purchases. We'd already have free college. We'd already have a $15 minimum wage or higher. If the government actually represented the people, that would be the case. But they don't represent the people. They're representing industry. Look, in, I use this example all the time, but in the 2020 election in Florida, Donald Trump beat Joe Biden, but also raising the minimum wage won with 60% of the vote. That means a lot of Republicans, average Joe and Jane Republicans, went and voted for Trump and then also voted to raise the minimum wage. How can that be? Well, it's very simple. The population is actually way more economically left than any of the politicians are. Because the average Joe and Jane are not bought off by Walmart and Pfizer and ExxonMobil and all these different companies. It's great that they're calling this out and credit to them. And they should ban politicians from owning stocks, absolutely. But don't get it twisted. The worst form of corruption, because it's more pervasive and there's more money involved in it, is campaign contributions. Now, unfortunately, the, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that basically money equals free speech in a number of court decisions over the years. And so whatever rules there are are very lax. And um, so you would need a constitutional amendment to give us public elections, clean elections. 
Uh, and what that means is instead of private funding of elections, you have public funding. So each candidate is allocated a certain amount, and then that's the money they could use to campaign. Or you give the American people a $100 or $200 voucher or whatever, and they get to spend it on whatever politicians they want. Um, that's the idea of a clean election. You get the private money out of the system so they actually start representing the people. We can't have that unless and until we have a constitutional amendment. That's one massive problem. Um, but there is a way around all this corruption, but short of taking on the monumental task of a constitutional convention to get the money out of the system. Um, you can have a direct democracy law at a federal level. allows us, you know, those direct ballot initiatives in the states. So, like, for example, here in New York, years ago, we voted on, like, should upstate New York be allowed to have casinos? They're lagging economically. They don't have a lot of jobs there. Uh, if the voters approve a casino there, then they'll have a casino there. That was one of the direct ballot initiatives. There's been a number, and California has a lot of them. A lot of states have a lot of direct ballot initiatives. Even some conservative states have direct ballot initiatives. The idea of a federal direct ballot initiative law, like a federal direct democracy law, could be that when you go vote for president every four years, you also get, get hit with five issues you vote directly on. Imagine all of us, you go vote for president, and then also as you're voting for president, should we raise the uh, minimum wage, wage to $15 an hour? By the way, I bet you would see participation in our democracy massively increase if people got to vote directly on the issues. Should we, pull, uh, should we um, end the war in Iraq? Should we have a $15 minimum wage? Should we have a universal health care system? And my guess is no matter what, who wins, Democrat or Republican, usually like 80% of the time, the better position wins for the direct ballot initiatives. And sometimes even with massive propaganda on the wrong side, the right side wins. Now, look, about 20% of the time, it doesn't. Sometimes the propaganda wins out. But 80-20 is a much better split than what we have right now, which is like 95-5. 95% of the time, the wrong position wins. 5% of the time, the right position wins. 80% on the right side of it, I'll take. I'll take it. So that's what we need to do. Um, but, look, corporate media turning on Nancy Pelosi is not something I saw coming. But what she said was so egregious, even they couldn't handle it. Okay, let's continue. Bill Clinton emerged from Epstein's plane to give us a master class on leadership and a bunch of nonsense. Take a look. If you want to lead something, start by saying, this is what I care about. This is what I want to do and why I think you should care about it and you should want to help. Hardly a day goes by that I don't think how fast my life has flown. How I remember is that we're yesterday the first day I became president. Hardly anything worth doing can be done alone. This is a particularly disorienting time for billions of people in the world. You've got major uncertainties about what's going to happen in the years ahead. At a time like that, you really need good leadership skills. And you need people whose goal it is to pull people together, not drive them apart. People need to feel the potential to create a better tomorrow. This class is unlike anything I've ever done. I'll be teaching skills I developed and used in very challenging leadership positions. And I hope that those skills will help you in your personal and professional lives. You'll learn how to work with people you don't agree with. May not even like, and how to mediate conflicts. I don't believe being nice is inconsistent with being tough and smart. You got to be tough as nails with your tender heart. So the video is actually about twice as long as what you just saw, and I kid you not, the entire time he's just spewing platitudes. 
platitudes and cliches and nonsense. If you want to lead, say, this is what I care about, and then do it. My life moved really fast. Yeah, Phil, we all feel that way. There's actually a mathematical reason why that is. I'm not, I don't have a math brain enough to describe it effectively, but like, the more you age, the more time feels like it speeds up. Hardly anything worth doing can be done alone. This is a disorienting time. You need good leadership. You should come together. Don't go apart. Okay? You need hope to create a better tomorrow. Be nice, but be tough and smart. What are you, reading a fucking fortune cookie? Like, that's all, that's all he's got. That's all he's got. Just, I'm going to say really nice, flowery things. I'm Bill Clinton. I'm, I'm in favor of good things, and I'm against bad things. I'm Bill Clinton. Okay, dude. Okay. Talk about how many times you're on Epstein's plane for us. We appreciate it. Um, so Thomas Frank has given us the ultimate breakdown of the Bill Clinton presidency. Um, I want to read, read for you from an article where, or an interview where he really laid it out. He said the following, quote, NAFTA, the Crime Bill of 1994, welfare reform, the deregulation of banks and telecoms, and the balanced budget, all of them, every single one, were longstanding Republican objectives. And that was Bill Clinton's top five achievements. His top five achievements were right-wing achievements. NAFTA is the free trade bill, which just gutted middle America and outsourced so many well-paying jobs. The crime bill locked up many non-violent offenders. So things that shouldn't be crimes, they considered crimes, and they threw the book at these people. Uh, Welfare reform gutted welfare. I think that's a terrible thing. Uh, The deregulation of banks and telecoms. Don't even get me started on that. That's the main reason why we have a tiny number of giant corporations that give us all of our information. Um, And the deregulation of banks, Glass-Steagall, excuse me, Graham-Leach-Bliley, which repealed Glass-Steagall, made it so that you no longer have a separation of commercial banking and investment banking. So it used to be when you go put your money in the bank, you felt like it was relatively safe and they were making safe investments with it, so you're good. They got rid of that wall of separation. Now you go invest in, or you go put money in your bank, and they'll invest in all sorts of derivatives and casino capitalist shit, and it can just tank the whole system, and you lose all your money. Bill Clinton brought us this. He brought us this. And the balanced budget amendment, or and it wasn't an amendment, excuse me, it, he did balance the budget. Um, that is something that the right said they care, you know, we care about this so much. Now, and by the way, he, pro- he largely was able to do it just because he was in the internet boom. So the economy, the tech sector of the economy really took off, and that helped him to be able to balance the budget. But what that means is you also have to cut back on social spending in order to balance the budget, and that's exactly what Bill Clinton did. Uh, you can say the only half-decent thing he did, or one of the half-decent things he did, is he raised that top marginal tax rate back up a little bit. Uh, good, I'll give credit where it's due. But for the most part, look, the point is you have the Republican Party, they are Republicans, and you have the Democratic Party, they are Republican-like. Bill Clinton ushered in that era. He's the New Deal Democrat. It's him and the Democratic Leadership Conference. They got together and said, hold on now, why do the Republicans raise so much more money than us? And the answer is very simple. Republicans raise money from every big industry, every corporation under the sun. They take money from them, and then they do their bidding. Democrats, to that point, had largely raised money through 
from specific special interest groups like unions and teachers and lawyers. Um, and it was Bill Clinton and these new Democrats, as they called themselves, that said, no, we're going to get in on that corporate money too. So he is largely responsible for the degradation of the Democratic Party. So terrible president. Um, really helped destroy the system, and now he's given us a master class on leadership. I don't know, Bill. I think you should go back into hiding because whenever anybody sees you now, they don't even think of the policy things I just laid out. All they think of is Epstein's plane, and that's not unfair at all. Okay. Next. A little bit of an I told you so. Joe Biden um, had his vaccine mandate, I put it in quotes, you guys know why, slapped down by um, the Fifth Circuit Court. And I did a segment at the time, and I said, okay, they slapped it down. I can virtually guarantee you this is going to be overturned. That when a higher court looks at it, they're going to say, wrong, this is allowed. Now, I didn't say that because I'm just giving my opinion. I told you guys, based on case law and precedent and history in the U.S. when it comes to the issue of vaccine mandates, um, what has been ruled over and over and over and over. And so when I told you guys, look, this isn't going to stand, a lot of you guys didn't like what I had to say or disagreed with me or thought I was wrong or whatever. Um, I'm here to say, tell me how my ass tastes, because, of course, I'm right. So AP says, breaking a federal appeals court panel has ruled that President Joe Biden's vaccine mandate for larger private employers can take effect. Friday's ruling reverses a lower court ruling that had paused the requirement. Huh. What do you know? Old Kyle's right again. Now, there was one thing I was wrong about. I said when it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will reverse it. Didn't even have to get to the Supreme Court. It got to the one court above it, the sixth court. And they were like, yeah, no, um, we're going to go ahead and allow this because it absolutely is allowed under the Constitution. So now my guess is it's going to be appealed again, and when it gets appealed again, maybe it will get to the Supreme Court, and, but my guess is they're going to say the exact same thing, that this is allowed. So, or worst-case scenario, the Supreme Court says, it's not allowed in the iteration you did it, but if it gets through Congress, then it would be totally allowed. So in other words, it's not the idea that the Constitution prohibits you from being able to do this. It's just not true. That's not accurate. Okay. But I want to give you some of the specifics here. So this is, Um, one of the judges, their statement on why this is allowed. Quote, given OSHA's clear and exercised authority to regulate viruses, OSHA necessarily has the authority to regulate infectious diseases that are not unique to the workplace. Judge Julia Smith-Gibbons, who was nominated to the court by former President George W. Bush, a Republican, wrote in her majority opinion, quote, vaccination and medical examinations are both tools that OSHA historically employed to contain illness in the workplace, she wrote. Uh, Gibbons noted that the agency's authority extends beyond just regulating hard hats and safety goggles. She said, the vaccine requirement is not a novel expansion of OSHA's power. It is an existing application of authority to a novel and dangerous worldwide pandemic. By the way, that's exactly one of the points I made in my segment. I said, listen, is it tyranny? Is it uh, authoritarianism? to say, look, if you work in a construction business, you have to wear a helmet. 
we have to wear safety goggles. Here are the rules. You can't, we can't have child labor. You have to, you know, certain number of hours off, certain number of hours on, because we need to make sure you're mentally sharp enough if you're dealing with, you know, um, dangerous equipment or whatever. It is basic workplace regulation. So I made the comparison. Like, if, you, if you're willing to say, yes, hard hats are authoritarian and, and tyrannical and seatbelts are authoritarian and tyrannical, then fine. Okay, you're consistent. Literally any little piece of market regulation is tyrannical. Well, the Supreme Court doesn't agree. Case law in the history, in the history of the U.S. doesn't agree. And most Americans don't agree with that. Like, there can be tiny little restrictions that are reasonable and are not abject tyranny. But it's funny how everybody gets so hyperbolic when we talk about this. Guys, in order to send your kid to school, they have to have, like, a, a laundry list of vaccines. And everybody seems to be like, that's fine. But then all of a sudden with the COVID vaccine now, it's like, oh, whoa, you're really crossing a line here. So, listen, let me be clear about my position because I actually don't agree with them on the substance. My position is a vaccine or test. So the Supreme Court, from 1905 until today, has consistently ruled hard vaccine mandates are okay. So in other words, the government could just tell you to take a vaccine, and if you don't, you're in violation of the law. Now, the penalties vary, and my guess is it's never more than, like, a, a fine, right? But technically, you're breaking the law if you don't get the vaccine. Now, I don't agree with that. My personal position on it is either get the vaccine or test. Because I think, yeah, it is a, it is a weird, slippery slope when you just, the government can tell people what to put in their bodies. I mean, look, Tuskegee experiment, right? We know how this can go wrong, and we know how it has gone wrong, and we know that we generally shouldn't just blindly trust the government. So I want to give people an out. And, but I also want to balance the health and well-being of the individual to protect their rights also with the community and the collective well-being, which is a traditional left value. You need to balance both of these things. So thankfully, we have a way of doing that. Vaccinate or test. Vaccinate or test. You don't want to get the vaccine, fine, but you're going to test. So that's my position on it. But let me be clear. The Constitution does not in any way, shape, or form say you can't actually have a hard vaccine mandate. You can. And the Supreme Court has ruled that over and over. We have case law in the U.S. and precedent that's ruled it over and over. And even George W. Bush-appointed judges are saying it. And again, when it gets to the conservative Supreme Court, my guess is they'll either say, this is totally allowed as it is, or... You can't do it through OSHA, but if Congress passes a law, then, then it can be done. So that's my, that's my guess. And I've been right to this point. I will probably be right again. And what I would say to everybody is you have to, you have to be intelligent enough to be able to separate out what is actually going to happen and what we think is going to happen and what case law shows versus what your own preference is. Because, again, my preference is a little softer than the Supreme Court, but I think Biden's instinct is correct. Vaccinator test is a good policy. Hard vaccine mandate, not a good policy. And by the way, final point, Jeremy Corbyn talked about this recently. And Jeremy Corbyn said, yeah, I, I think it's, you should either get vaccinated or test. And it's funny because he got praise from the anti-mandate left when he, his position is the exact same as Joe Biden's. That's the same position, vaccinate or test. But for whatever reason, a lot of people just started pretending that Biden's vaccine mandate was a hard mandate when it's not. I would even go a touch further than Biden in that I don't care about businesses 100 people and over. I would say all businesses either vaccinate or test. So I'm a touch harder than Biden on that. But Jeremy Corbyn agrees with Biden. Somehow Biden got, or excuse me, Corbyn got praise from the anti-mandate left. 
and Biden got scorn from the anti-mandate left when they had the same position, vaccinate or test. So it's all in the framing. Like, I think the reason why people were praising Corbyn is because the tweet that went out with the video said that he's against mandates. Well, okay, we can play the same thing. We can play the same game with Biden. He's against mandates. Because he didn't say you have to get a vaccine and that's it. He said vaccinate or test. So it's all in, like, how people were introduced to it. But I think that's stupid. Everybody needs to listen to the fucking details of it and then make your mind up. So, look, I think that I was right to this point. I'm going to be right again. And I'll reiterate what I said earlier. Tell me how my ass tastes. All right, next. Don Jr. spoke at the TPUSA conference thingy, and uh, he appears to be coked up, which is kind of funny. I'm not knocking him for it. Um, If I was in his position, in his position, I'd probably be coked up as hell, too, having that dad and his shadow override literally anything you do in your life. Um, And you're trying desperately to be like him and cut copies of every mannerism and whatnot, as you'll see right here. So uh, he explained in his speech why, indeed, he's been lying to us this whole time. Turns out he's not against cancel culture. He's pro-cancel culture. They're the ones that are controlled by the left, and that's because we have allowed it to happen. Right? That's why watching a group like this here means so much to me. It's why I got my butt on a plane and flew all the way to the West Coast to speak for half an hour only to fly back. Because we are the front line of freedom. We are the front line of liberty. And if we band together, we can take on these institutions. But we got to do it together. Okay? That's where we've gone wrong for a long time. And I've, you know, if you've been and seen me speak here, you've heard me say it a thousand times. But guess what, folks? If we get together, they cannot cancel us all. Okay? They won't. And this will be contrary to a lot of our beliefs because I'd love not to have to participate in cancel culture. I'd love that it didn't exist. But as long as it does, folks, we better be playing the same game. Okay? We've been playing t-ball for half a century. While they're playing playing hardball and cheating, right? We've turned the other cheek, and I understand. I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality. But it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing. While we've ceded ground in every major institution in our country. So much to pick apart there. Um... He basically admits, like, yeah, as long as there's cancel culture, we need to be the ones doing the canceling. We need to be the ones on the front line. We need to be the ones fighting. Don't turn the other cheek. They cancel us, you cancel them. So in other words, what he's saying is I have zero principles. I don't actually believe in anything. If I'm posturing as against cancel culture, no, I'm not actually against cancel culture. I just want to be the one doing the canceling. It's like the whole free speech discourse. We're in favor of free speech and the left isn't. No, you just want to be the ones who are controlling the speech. It's like that idiot with his, uh, Mike Lindell with his so-called free speech platform. He's like, We believe in free speech, and by the way, on my platform, there's going to be no taking the Lord's name in vain, no pornography, no using bad words, and okay, so you don't believe in it. It's amazing. Like, he obliterates himself in that clip and doesn't even realize it because he's too dumb. And by the way, 
The right already engages in cancel culture nonstop. The original canceling was the Dixie Chicks. They spoke out against George W. Bush in the Iraq War, and their career was obliterated. That was cancel culture. Conservatives got a movie called The Hunt Pulled because it hurt their feelings. That's cancel culture. Roy Moore sued Sasha Baron Cohen over a joke. Sasha Baron Cohen used a pedo detector on Roy Moore, and, Sasha, and he was sued by Roy Moore. He took him to court over a joke. Cancel culture. Your dad, Donald Trump, sued Bill Maher over a joke when he compared him to an orangutan. Cancel culture. Emily Wilder was a journalist. She was fired by the AP for pro-Palestine activism. Cancel culture. Colin Kaepernick kneeled in peaceful protest, and you guys took away his job and talked about how he should be kicked out of the NFL. Cancel culture. Gwen Berry was an Olympic athlete. She turned away from the flag. They wanted her kicked off of the Olympics. Cancel culture. Little Nas X came out with a Satan shoe, and the governor of North Dakota, who claims to be against cancel culture, went on TV and literally said this guy should be canceled. Cancel culture. Brandy Love, a porn star, was kicked out of CPAC for being a porn star. Cancel culture. Chapo Trap House was banned on Reddit. Antifa was banned on Twitter. There are anti-BDS laws in dozens of states around the country. That's led by Republicans. Cancel culture. Against free speech. There's anti-protest laws in a bunch of Republican states around the country. Cancel culture. Against free speech. Don't give me this nonsense. And I like how he says there, we are the front line of freedom and liberty. You're the front line of freedom and liberty. Uh, I'm sorry, I missed the memo. I didn't know your dad legalized marijuana. Like, the number one thing you could do in this country to increase freedom and liberty would be to legalize the drug and let people put in their body whatever they want to put in their body as long as they're not hurting anybody else. He didn't do that. You're not the front line of freedom and liberty. You're the upholders of the status quo. We're the front line of freedom and liberty, which is why my dad pardoned Snowden and Assange. Oh, oh, wait, he didn't do that. That's right, he didn't do that. He doesn't believe in freedom. He doesn't believe in liberty. He doesn't believe in a free press. First Amendment? No, he cucked himself to the deep state, the thing that you guys pretend like you're against all the time. And the final point is, the whole, the whole notion and implication of what he's getting at here is the Republicans are soft and the Democrats are so tough and they band together. On what planet the entire Democratic agenda was just tanked by a Democratic senator? They're not banding together. They're not tough. They're scared of their own shadow. Are you kidding me? And the idea that Republicans are soft? On what planet? I mean, you guys got, Trump has like a litmus test for Republicans around the country. You have to say that the election was stolen from me in order for, for me to, you to get my support. And a lot of them are being like, yeah, it was stolen. It wasn't a fair election. This idea that they're, oh, they're soft and they just won't say what we want them to say and band together. All they do is band together. Yeah, you got the Liz Cheney's and the Kinzinger's and a couple who don't like Trump, but Homeboy's got that party in a vice grip. So you guys do band together a lot more. You guys, all you do is play dirty, aggressive politics. And the Democrats are weak, wimps, dweebs. Everything about this was dumb, but what do you expect from the fail son of Donald Trump? And again, just final point, because I find this so hilarious. It was when he tries to talk like his dad and he uses the same hand motions that his dad does, it's like... You're so sad. You're so sad. We learned with this, the January 6th text that came out that uh, Trump's sons would talk to Mark Meadows to get through to Trump. Can't even talk to his own dad. God, Trump, the one thing I love about Trump is that he hates his sons. <laughs> he really fucking hates them. He really does. Because you know what? Trump, Trump 
um, has a soft spot for strength. He likes strength in people. And he looks at his sons, and he just sees, like, little cucks who are trying to follow in his footsteps and be exactly like daddy. And he thinks that's weak shit. He's like, be your own man. Go do your own thing. Like, don't hitch yourself to my wagon and copy me and try to be exactly like me and be a worse, dumber version of me. So Trump's right about that. His sons are really fucking sad. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. So we got a new poll that just came out. It's absolutely astounding. Let me show this to you. Mediaite says, Earlier this year, the political media world was set abuzz when it was reported that Trump was telling confidants that he believed, believed he'd be reinstated to the presidency in August, a notion that turned out to be fed by delusions floated by Trump allies like MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell and attorney Sidney Powell. And Trump himself appeared to confirm this in June when he told a crowd in North Carolina that, quote, we're going to take back the White House and sooner than you think. According to Lindell, the date of Trump's miraculous ascension was to be August 13th. Even after that date came and went, 22% of Republicans still said it was either very likely, 11%, or somewhat likely, 11%, that Trump will be reinstated according to YouGov's October poll. But according to a new poll from YouGov released this week, even with just 13 days left in the year, a third of Republicans still think it's possible, and one in five think it's likely that Trump will be reinstated this year. Holy cow. Wow. Respondents to the poll were asked, how likely or unlikely do you think it is that Donald Trump will be reinstated as president before the end of 2021? So 33% still think it's possible he'll be reinstated. Wow. Wow. That is something else, man. That is something else. Now, I forget the number. I think it was 49% of Republicans think, like, the election wasn't fair. And now you got... 33% still think it's possible he'll be reinstated. Talk about it all the time, bro, but TFGs are a thing. Look, one of my missions on this show is to deconvert people from horrendous politics to reasonable politics. And I think we've done a pretty decent job of that over the years. And, you know, my favorite thing is when I hear from you guys or on the Politicon or whatever event, where you say, listen, I was like a Ben Shapiro fan or I was a Steven Crowder fan and I started watching your stuff and you snapped me out of it completely. That's like a big point of pride for me. I know there are other less content creators who feel the exact same thing. Um, and I, I'm, not, I'm never going to give up on that mission because that mission is too important. We don't have the luxury of giving up on that mission. But at the same time, I also understand we're all human beings and there, there are limits. And so do I think it's possible to convert 100% of Republicans? Of course not. No, that's ridiculous. Um, what I do think is possible is to have a candidate that's um, – so powerful and overwhelming and moving and anti-establishment that you can win an election with 60% of the vote in the country, you go 60-40, you know, where you see these elections that are like 51-49, what if we had one that was like 60-40 and the person who advocates the good politics gets 60%? I definitely think that's possible. Um, but now we're starting to get some clear numbers as to what percentage are TFGs in the Republican Party. So when you look at 49% say, oh, I think the election wasn't fair or whatever. That's a rough sense of like, okay, so half the Republicans are really flirting with that TFG stuff. But now we know 33% still think it's possible he'll be reinstated at this late date. Those I'm very comfortable saying, TFG. TFG. Now, 
Hillary did get in trouble, and I even went after her for when she was talking, you know, the deplorables comment. But if you actually listen to the full thing in context, she said, well, about half of them are just not gettable, and she calls them deplorables. I wouldn't go that far to say people are deplorables. You could have bad beliefs and still be a good person. You could have terrible politics and still functionally act like a good person. But to the idea that, like, look, you're, you're never going to get those people, I don't think that's entirely wrong. When 49% say uh, the election wasn't fair or it was stolen from Trump, the wording matters. I don't remember exactly what the wording was in that poll because so, some wording is less stupid, other wording is more stupid. But anyway, but now 33% still think he'll be reinstated. I have no problem saying 33% are TFG. You don't give up on the mission. You don't stop trying to deconvert people. Uh, it's super important, and it works if you do it right. But um, I, I'm under no illusions about cracking that 33% because – those motherfuckers are so deep in this shit that they're more likely to listen to some QAnon psychopath who's saying that aliens are going to invade than any sort of reasonable, logical argument. And unfortunately, we do have some studies that have come out that talk about how reason only goes so far, logic only goes so far in changing people's minds, that unfortunately a lot of it has to do with personal life experience and emotions and timing and all those things. So you just have to hope that you get somebody at a decent time where they're more receptive and use the right arguments and pave the right path, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And unfortunately, this is some real radicalization going on on the right. Uh, I do think that over the years, I mean, in my adult life, there's been that significant chunk of insanity there, but I think it's actually, it has gotten worse, and I think it's facilitated by Trump in many respects. All right, guys, we are done. I love you all deeply. I hope everybody has a a great rest of the day, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Peace.